Next time we read or have a preaching from the Word as we journey through the New Testament, it will be two weeks from today. That will be first epistle of John. But today we are in Second Peter, the second epistle that Peter wrote. We're going to begin at verse number 1. Second Peter chapter 1. We're reading in the English Standard Version this morning. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now skip down down to verse number 12. Same chapter, verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to you, and hopefully it was clearer to you, as our brother just read in John 21, in verse 15, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. I have something to say to you. The Bible is full of valuable verses. The Word is rich, life-giving, and powerful. Some of the key verses, though, in the book of Second Peter, let me recite a few of them to you. These are worthy of memorizing. Verse 20 and 21 of chapter 1. No prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy did not come in the origins of the human heart, but holy men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 3 verse 8. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. 3 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 3.10 The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. That's verse 10. Verse 13, We look for a new heaven and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And then 3.18, Grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Those are just some of the very important verses and there are many more, of course, but ones that you might consider memorizing. 
How many of you know a famous person? Do you know a famous person? Besides your wife, your girlfriend, boyfriend, a friend. No, a real famous person. Probably none of us in this room do, right? Have you ever met a famous person? Have you ever met, let's say, for instance, somebody that was a survivor on the Titanic? Anybody ever met one of them? Very interesting and sad event that happened in human history. I had an aunt that uh, was a uh, babysitter for Ike Eisenhower's grandchildren. I thought that was pretty cool. I used to ask her questions about what it was like babysitting the president's grandchildren. I thought that was pretty cool. There was an old brother I met up in Maine. He was nine, he was nine, uh, at 95 when I met him back in 1975. So he was born in 1880 and he was converted in the 1880s, uh, early 1890s under the preaching of D.L. Moody who had gone to Maine years before. He said he was convicted under the preaching of that famous preacher back in the uh, 19th century. And I asked him questions about Moody. What was it like to sit there and listen to that phenomenal, great, gifted preacher? So many things have been written about that error and about his preaching. And he shared with me his heart, what he thought of it. He happened to be one that as a child at seven years of age, his mother used to sit him on the lap and read Charles Spurgeon's letters. Uh, I should say sermons that came across on the uh, ships that came from the other side and brought to America. thought that was interesting. Well, here we have Peter. This is how the book reads. starts off, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine if you were in the church and one of the elders says, guess what we got today? We got a letter from the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter wrote us a letter? Yes, the Apostle Peter. Who is this Apostle Peter? Think about it. Think about somebody who was next to somebody. He was a celebrity, you could say, who was a companion of a legacy of the Lord Jesus. He walked with him. He talked with him. He observed everything that Jesus did during his three and a half years of ministry. He was handpicked by Jesus at the Sea of Galilee when he says, come and follow me. Wow, a letter from Peter. How special that must be. Let's say something about Peter. Peter was introduced to Jesus as well by his brother Andrew who said, come and see the one who's the Messiah. He came. He met him at the shores of Galilee. He saw the many miracles he did. He was with him in the boat when he got up on the deck and he calmed the winds and the sea. He met Moses and Elijah. Just think of that. The author of this book writing to fellow Christians is one who saw Moses and Elijah. Moses had died practically 1,500 years before. Elijah, as far as we know, never died. He was caught up 
by the chariot of fire of horses up in the sky went to be with the Lord. And these two figures appear on the Mount of Transfiguration. Our brother was reading that. This is the one that's writing the epistle. How interested would you be in receiving something, something from someone who had been that close to the Lord Jesus, to Moses and Elijah? He had his feet washed by Jesus. He was at Gethsemane when Jesus prayed that the Lord would take the cup away from him three times. He was the one that cut off the ear of the high priest's servant and saw Jesus put that ear back and heal it back in place. He was with him when he was arrested and interrogated. He saw him suffer on the cross. He saw Jesus after his resurrection a number of different times. He was told, as our brother read, to feed the sheep. He was given the keys of the kingdom, Jesus said to him. He preached on the day of Pentecost. He was involved in healing of the man that was lame, who sat by the gate called Beautiful in Acts chapter 3. He raised up Tabitha from the dead. He opened the door for the Gentiles when he was called to go to the home of Cornelius. He's called a pillar of the church. He has written two epistles, inspired words of God to the church. Peter is informing them that I'm ready to die. The Lord Jesus told me that my time is coming and it is soon. I don't know of anyone else in the Bible who knew not only when they would die, but how they would die. Peter happens to be that unique figure. Peter is anxious to get something across to his readers before he dies. He wants to stir them up. He wants to remind them of certain things. So when he leaves, they have this record behind left by Peter for them. Peter was told by the Lord along with others, you shall be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. In the first epistle of Peter, Peter's theme, you could say, is he was an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ. In second Peter, you could say that Peter is writing as one who was an eyewitnesses of the majesty of Christ. He saw Him glorified before His very eyes. And He brings that to the attention of His readers in Second Peter chapter 1. We were with Him on the holy mount. He doesn't describe the event in detail, but you know what stuck out in His mind? I heard the voice of Almighty God speaking from heaven, putting His blessing on His Son and declaring Him to be the greatest, the glorious One. This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Peter heard that with his very ears. Now Peter himself is going to be baptized in the baptism of suffering. And he tells them in the second epistle, what Jesus told me that I'm going to be baptized, and that baptism is a baptism of suffering. He says, I have a cup to drink that you cannot taste. That's mine exclusively. 
And I have a baptism to be baptized with. And you too will be baptized. That's a baptism of suffering. And Peter is informed and he's telling the audience of his readers, yes, I'm about to put off this tabernacle of death. Some historians think that Jesus was referring, rather, Peter was referring to here when he's quoting what Jesus said to him, that he would be crucified, his hands would be extended, and he would be brought where he would not want to go, and that he would have been crucified. And the, the story is that he chose not to be crucified vertically like Jesus, but to be crucified upside down. You know, Paul too, when he writes his epistles, it's in light of the fact that he's going to depart as well. Think of him in Acts chapter 20 when he gathers the elders together. And he's giving them instructions and he says to them, I know that you will not see my face again. And this he spoke of his departure. And what does he say in light of his departure? He reminds them, For I know this, that after my departing shall many grievous wolves enter in, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, trying to lead away disciples after themselves. So Paul, like Peter, is writing from the standpoint that they both know that after they die, and even while they were living, there was... There was sights of this on the scene of those that were coming in, trying to bring the believers into bondage, trying to dupe them, as it were, and causing them to sin and causing them to go the way of error. So Peter is warning them about that. And in his epistle, as we read on in chapter 1, in verse number 1... As it goes on to say, those that have obtained, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those that have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Who's ours? He is speaking as an apostle, among apostles, to those who were, we would say, lay people. And he's saying, what I've got, you got the same thing. It's a shared faith. It's a standing that you and I both are on equal ground standing upon. When John the Apostle writes in his epistle, he says, These things have I written unto you that you might have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. Amazing that God wants us to have fellowship with Him. And John is saying, I want you like me to have what I have so you with me can share what we both can have together. And that is fellowship with Almighty God. When we read in Hebrews chapter 11, we are really the additions to that chapter. By faith, Enoch, by faith, Noah, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Sarah, Moses, and so on. You could say, by faith, Justin, by faith, Michael, by faith, Titus, by faith, Fred, by faith, Ida, by faith, Isaac. We are, we are the supplement of the history of the men of faith. They aren't really Hall of Famers, they are in the Hall of Saints. 
the faith that they had is the faith that you and I have. I think that's remarkable. We sometimes look at the people of the Bible and we think of them and we have amazing things that, of course, that God does in using them. But what they had is what we have. We're not at a disadvantage. The same Holy Spirit that indwelt them is the one that indwelt us. As a matter of fact, Jesus said in Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. What kind of a disadvantage is that? Nothing. At the end of the age, we have what they had at the beginning of the age. The very same thing. What a privilege to have this equal status. Let's read on in verse 3. His divine power has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own or by His own glory and excellence. Power. This Greek word here is dunamis. It's not exousia, which is the word for authority, which is what we have to be called children of God. We have that authority. But we here have what Peter says, we have been given power. His divine power has given unto us. Paul describes it in a little different way in the book of Ephesians. He says, the same power that raised up Jesus from the dead is what dwells in you. We have the resurrection life. The life that raised Christ from the dead is the very life that you and I have. Now you might be hanging your head and saying, boy, I don't know, maybe I don't have it. You do have it. If you've got Christ, you've got life, you've got power. We're not talking about physical power. We're not talking about miraculous power. We're talking about the power, as Peter describes it, that pertains to life and godliness. I know before I was converted, I knew of some Christians, and I was in Pentecostal circles at the time, but there were some very solid believers that were very easily detected as dedicated Christians. And I, and I looked at them and I said, man, that's, that's out of my wheel. I, I, I could never be like them. I saw their dedication, their love for the Lord, their witnessing desires. They were sold out for Christ. And I thought, man, they're in church all the time. They're reading the Bible. I said, I could never live like that. I couldn't come close to that, is what I thought. And it would still be the case. And if you're striving to be a Christian without the Spirit of Christ in you, it's futile. Your efforts are in vain. You will feel defeated over and over again. But we need to be reminded that we have this equal standing with the Apostle Peter and the Apostles. And we're given this power that pertains to life and godliness. Jesus said in John 15:3, Without Me, you can do nothing. You can't do anything without Christ in you. You want to stop this and stop that, and you're saying, I can't do it. If you don't have Christ, you probably can't, and it would be futile anyway if you did, because they that are in the flesh cannot please God. If you don't have the Spirit and are made spiritual, you won't be able to fill 
fulfill the spiritual laws of God, as it were. A life of obedience. A life filled with joy and happiness. We're not talking about some kind of a laundry list that we as Christians have to fill. And if I'm not able to put a check mark next to that box, that I'm sort of an incompetent Christian or I'm a failure. We're not talking about that. We're talking about life in the Lord. And that life can be expressed in many different ways. You might not be a pulpit preacher. You might not be a Sunday school teacher. You might not be an evangelist hitting the streets or whatever, whatever. But you have the power within you to live a life for the Lord. A life with power. His divine power has given unto us all things that pertain to life and God. You're not short-handed. God doesn't deal you one less card, as it were. It's power that you are able, capable by Him. Paul says, I can do all things through Him, through Christ, who strengthens me. Where does our strength come from? It comes from the Lord. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's the difference. Who's living the life? Paul says, it's not I, but Christ liveth in me. The flesh profits nothing. It's the Spirit that quickens. Power. We are given power. Thirdly, let's read on. In verse 4, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. Promises. The Bible says God is not a man that He should like. Who do you depend on for the confidence of being a Christian, of being a child of God, knowing that your sins are forgiven, that you're going to go to heaven? The Bible says God is not a man that He should lie. Titus 1 verse 2 says, On hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. You and I might not be promise keepers, but God is. He never fails. He'll never let us down. His Word is sure. That's what our confidence is. Is in. That's what I hang my hat on. That's my whole hope. My feelings might get really low. Like a sister used to say to me about, and she used to have bad days, very depressed. Her two, her two children kind of abandoned her, really never came alongside of her. Her, her husband divorced her shortly after her second child. She grew up pretty much almost like a widowed woman. And I, I had the joy of getting to meet her in my young days as a Christian. I would go and visit her, read the Bible with her, bring her to Bible studies in church and so on. And I could see her face was oftentimes downcast. And she would talk about her feelings, how, how, how sad she was at times. But she says, you know what I do? I take my pill. I try to take my pill every day. And that's what really helps me. And this is a good pill for all of us to take. This is, this is the real medication that we need, brothers and sisters. What that sister said, I need the gospel pill. That's the pill that we need. That's the thing that will keep us above our circumstances. She said, if it wasn't for this, the gospel, I would be down in the dumps. Her husband stabbed her with a knife even. She still had the scars on her body 
from the brutality that she handled as a married woman. And then having two children that seemed to have no care or concern for her. But she realized where her strength came. And, and her sister would say this to, to me that I never forget is what, well, she said, we're not saved by our feelings. But when you're saved, you feel it. We're not saved by our feelings. But when you're saved and are saved, you'll feel it. Now, feelings can be misleading. We know that, right? We can have good days, bad days, up and down, happy, sad, and so on. But when you're saved, you know deep down, you have that feeling in your bones. If I can describe it in sort of a natural way, a biblical way would be that... God has given to us the Spirit. We do know that we know Him because of the Spirit of God that dwells within us. Romans 8, verse 16. We have the witness within ourselves, 1 John chapter 5 says. So it doesn't really matter what somebody tells me or what I may be trying to tell myself in my confused mind and head because I get mixed up maybe with doctrine or I get mixed up with sort of directions that I want to go in life. But if I have the Spirit of God within me, I've got to continuously lean on the witness of Him to me to have that assurance that I belong to Him. Reading on. This is unbelievable here. Let me repeat verse 4. By which He has granted to us His precious and very great not, not small, not just promises, but great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. You talk about elevation. How can we have been elevated any more than to be, and I'm going to use this word cautiously and I will qualify it, we have in a sense become deified. And I need to explain that. We're not God. We're not divine. But in some sense, we have been made, as it says here, partakers of the divine nature. Jesus, who was exclusively divine, spirit, pure spirit, only God. He was incarnated, so God partook of flesh. It tells us that in Hebrews 2.14, doesn't it? About Jesus. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, He also Himself Likewise, partook of the same. We could say to God, you partook of flesh and blood. That's true. As a matter of fact, Jesus still is in a body now. The hymn writer said, He wears my nature on the throne. He didn't divest Himself of His human nature when He went away. Not like Superman and take off his suit and then flies away and leaves the suit behind. But no, his full human nature he takes with him that is coupled 
not mingled, but coupled with His divine nature, He is now in glory as the God-man. We, in a sense, have become now the man-God, the woman-God. That's what it, we've got to make something out of this. Partakers of divine nature. Like I said, we have to be careful that we don't try to push this too far and try to deify ourselves as if we are God or even a little God. That would be inaccurate language and maybe even blasphemous to go that far to describe it that way. But I think what it's basically saying is this. Jesus had to come into the world and be born in a body to be incarnated. We have to be born anew from above. That's what Peter says in the first book of Peter, chapter 1, verse 3. He has caused us to be born anew or born of another kind, a birth from heaven. So that birth from heaven while we here are on earth, enables us to be partakers of the divine nature. So you have, in a sense, two natures. You have a human nature, and you have a divine nature, because God has installed that into you by the birth that He has created in you when He birthed you into the faith. Of His own will begat He us by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. James 1, verse 18. God used the agency of the Word to bring us life, to birth us, and now we're in the family of God. And the Bible classifies us as partakers of the divine nature. Peter wants to stir us up about that. He's about to leave the world. And when he's leaving the world, the beat goes on. It doesn't end with the apostle or the apostles. The beat goes on. The baton is passed. The new nature is received by the family of God. And we, with the divine power given to us that pertains to life and godliness, continue to carry on. In the world. Peter in his epistle reminds them of the two difficulties that were going to be a hindrance. This is an epistle of warning. The two are the false teachers and the mockers. The teachers and the mockers are the hindrances in the book of Peter, Second Peter. He says, first of all, that false prophets are going to arise among you as they did among the people. Who are the people? The people of Israel. False prophets rose among them. What What was their point? They denied the Lord who bought them. The false teachers that the Jews were under going to the promised land who were infiltrating their ranks and filling their heads with ideas. Let's go back to Egypt. 
Moses delayed his coming. He's gone. This God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is nowhere to be found. Let's go back to Egypt. They've denied the Lord who bought them. It's the false prophets in Israel who were prophesying falsely that they were bought out of Egypt by the blood of the Lamb, the Passover Lamb. And that's how they were denying the Lord. And Peter is wanting, wanting his contemporary culture of Christians, you too have to be warned by the, about the false teachers so that you don't go back to the pollutions of the world that you have escaped the corruption from. And then in the last chapter, Mark is coming saying, where's the promise of His coming? You said He was supposed to come. Years have gone by. We haven't even seen Him. You know, do you ever think this? Peter was told by the Lord that he was going to die. How could Jesus have come in Peter's lifetime? Peter, we believe, was martyred in Rome. He died in Rome. He probably wrote this epistle in the middle 60s. The first one maybe 63, 64. This one 65 or 6. Something like that. And he too is talking about, we look for a new heaven and a new earth. But he knows himself that I've got to put off this tabernacle, this body, as Jesus told me. You know that word that he talks about, for the, my, that my departure is at hand? That word that, that he uses, it, that could be translated decease, it really, it's the word that is in the Greek, exodus, which means to exit. So when a person dies, he exits his body and he goes, he departs this world. For the believer, absent from the body, present with the Lord. That's what Peter was anticipating. That's what's going to happen to me. And yet at the same time, Peter, knowing this, is still able to talk about the second coming of Christ. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. God is not slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness, but He's long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. For the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. The elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are, in, that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in, holy, in all holy conversation and godliness? We are delivered from the false prophets who wanted us to go back to Egypt, back into the corruption of the world. And we're also delivered from the false mockers who are trying to say, don't you believe in the second coming of Christ? That's never going to happen. Look at nothing has changed. Peter says, don't worry about it. A day with the Lord is a thousand years. Be patient unto the waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't let them rock your world. Don't let them make you think of the earth when we're told to look for a new heavens and a new earth. So brothers, we've come out of Egypt. We've escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. By these exceeding great and precious promises, we've been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. These are the promises of God. And what a privilege it is to be on 
equal status with the apostles Peter, James, Paul, you name it. We are what they were, children of God, children by faith that had to fight the same battle. They were up against the same things that you and I are up against. That's why we have to get stirred up by, a, by an apostle who would write in his last days, maybe his last breath saying, I want to stir you up before I leave this world. I don't want to see you go down with the false prophets giving you this wrong teaching, trying to promise you liberty when they really want to bring you into bondage. And those false advertisers who are trying to bring you down, mocking the second coming of Christ as if it would never happen. To be able to resist them, we need to know our privilege. We need to know the promises. We need to know the power. And we need to know that we are partakers of the divine nature. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for the precious, precious words of God. The Holy Scriptures, Lord, that are able to make us wise. Thank You, Lord, that no words of Scriptures, Lord, are of any private or personal or originating interpretation from any human being. But Lord, they are sent from You. Help us, Lord, to value the Scriptures, to devour them, to enjoy them, to live them, Lord. Work in our hearts and in our lives, O Lord, and cause us, Father, to be followers after You. Thank You, Lord, for giving us a Peter who, with his own and many downfalls, could write, Lord, words under inspiration to try to stir us up by reminding us, Lord, of these precious promises, of the great privileges that we have, of that the fact that we are partakers of the divine nature and that we're given these powers. Lord, we praise You and ask, Lord, that You would help us to fulfill the ministry that You have called us to, that we would not succumb to the ways of the world, but that, Lord, we would set our scope on the things above, that we would look for the new heaven and the new earth, wherein righteousness will dwell. Lord, hear our cry. And for any that doesn't have that hope, Lord, we pray that they would cleave to You, that they would trust You, that they would cast themselves upon You for salvation and assurance that they belong to You by faith in our Lord Jesus. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen.